lots of lousy businesses, and there's lots of wonderful businesses. It's the art and science of money. My job over the years has been to try and figure out which is which. It's Hi-Fi Radio. From the AM640 studios in Toronto, with Hi-Fi portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, here's Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle. Well, good morning, Toronto, and welcome back to Hi-Fi Radio on AM640. Got a great show lined up for you this morning. Uh, We're going to start the show off with a good friend of mine, Kyle Rose in New York. He covers biotech stocks, sort of like uh, body parts. Very good at it. We're then going to speak with our strategist, and Tony Dwyer is an absolute genius. You see him on CNBC an awful lot. Uh, He's going to, of course, speak strategy and really what makes stocks go up. Isn't that what we want to know? Why and what makes stocks go higher? Well, Tony's going to help us with that. We're then going to follow by Rick Davis, a software analyst. He covers these big, big data-type companies, uh, Salesforce, uh, which is basically contact relationship management, Big Brother watching behind the scenes, some very, very powerful companies, Adobe and the like. So Rick's going to talk about software land, and then we're going to bring it back home to Canada. Canadian dollar was on a bit of a tear this week, so Jeff Blanco, our foreign exchange specialist at Canaccord Genuity, is going to share with us what drove the loony higher. But back to New York, Kyle Rose, thank you for joining us, Kyle. Absolutely. Thanks for having me this afternoon. So, Kel, uh, Jack and I in our portfolios, we own a little Zimmer and um, Medtronic, uh, basically companies that make body parts. Uh, you cover a few other companies, Zimmer included, of course. You covered Nuvasis. Uh, so let's talk. Let's, let's start with Zimmer. Um, again, the company, hips, knees, elbows, uh, anything else we should talk about in terms of actual product and product category they manufacture? Yeah, so Zimmer is, is one of the largest you know, pure play um, you know, orthopedic um, and, and reconstructive companies in the space. So they make everything from hips and knees, which you talked about, elbows. They've got a, a complete spine, a spinal implant portfolio. They also have a lot of sports medicine products when you think about ACL reconstructions or rotator cuff tears, anything sports-related. And then just to, to, to round it out, they also have a, a full dental business, so dental implants um, to serve a little bit more of the of the cash pay side of the market as well. Mm-hmm. In terms of valuation relative to the broader market, again, everyone's saying that the, the equity market's a little little frothy in here. We saw a little bit of give back in the marketplace this week. But, you know, personally, when it comes to healthcare, I, I see here on a relative basis and both an absolute basis, still a pretty good shake for your money. How, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I, mean, I think I'll let um, Tony Dwyer, the strategist, talk about you know portfolio allocation and you know relative weighting um, right. for for healthcare. But when I think about you know, where we're at, and when I think about my names, I mean, healthcare broadly has been a pretty strong trade to start the year. But I still think there's areas to find value. And you know, you brought up a great one to start the start the conversation here with Zimmer. I mean, Zimmer's trading at you know, thirteen. Point four times, uh, you know, my 2018 um, earnings estimate. You know, and when I think about the broader, the large cap medical device group, that group trades closer to 20, 21 times forward forward earnings. So, and I think that, I think that it's probably a little bit more of a stock picker's market. But I think that you know that that's where some of the reward comes in. Mm-hmm. So, so Kyle, you say how cheap uh, Zimmer is here. They made an acquisition of Biomet uh, not too long ago. Uh, they've had some issues with integration. Um, how long do you think that this uh, integration and in, uh, uh, issues will continue with uh, with Zimmer. Yeah, I mean, I think um, everyone's kind of hoping that the, we're coming towards the tail end of those integration issues, you um, exiting the Q2 right. uh, 17. So, so you know, right around now and, and towards the middle of the summer. 
management talked about you know, the most recent event has been you know, some supply constraints on some of the big key products uh, that, that they're really looking to, to leverage. Because what they, when you think about the, pro, the, the company before the acquisition, they had two very strong um, independent commercial sales channels, so two completely different uh, sales forces with their respective products. When they merged together, you know, the thought is, you know, bigger is better. We, we can cross-sell these, the, the Zimmer products into the Biomet sales force and cross-sell the, the Biomet products into the Zimmer sales force. Well, we really haven't haven't been able to see that type of execution in the market yet because they've had some supply constraints um, in, in the early days. So hopefully we'll get to the you know get get some of those issues resolved as we move into the back half of 2017. We can see top line growth accelerate a little bit and then really see what the what the core business really looks like post acquisition. So once they get through these transitory issues, Kyle, um, what kind of multiple would you expect to see on a company like uh, Zimmer Biomet? Yeah, when I think about Zimmer Biomet, I mean, it, it should trade at a discount relative to, to some of the other large cap peers, and that's that's solely because you know the end markets at Zimmer Services uh, have have slower growth right. than some of the other end markets in this space. So you think about hips or knees; those are markets that are growing, you know, mid single digits, low mid single digits year over year on an annual basis. Um, and it, but then you compare that to you know some of the other you know heart valve and, and cardio markets, you're just seeing a, a larger growth there. So the companies with higher growing and markets should should you know garner the, the the top end of the of the multiple range. But when I think about a company like Zimmer, I mean it's trading at 13 times relative to the group at 21 times. I think you've got you know three or four turns, and you and, and you should see the stock somewhere up to you know slight discount to 20, so maybe you know 17, 18, 19 times your know, forward earnings is is fair. Right. Uh, well, uh, we remain long that name. Uh, let's go over to your new Vasive. Um, this is a, a company I know very very little about, but so they're in the spinal business. Yep, exactly. So, so, so what exactly do they do? Yeah, so so Nuva Nuvasive has been you know, one of the premier growth stories in in the spinal implant business. So they make they are a pure play spine company. They have hardware, the so plates and screws, and then also you know biologics, you know, products that actually help help you heal um, specifically for the treatment of, of of back injuries. When you think about the biggest orthopedic market, that is spine. Um, so they have they're they're really known for being the best in class, minimally invasive company. So you how do you do? Um, bigger procedures with smaller openings, you know, that's better for the patient. You have less blood loss, less just surrounding trauma to the issue or to the, to the overall anatomical areas. And then hopefully you heal faster, you feel better. Um, so you know, they're really the company that's over the past you know, 15 years has really pioneered the minimally invasive, minimally invasive spine field. Absolutely remarkable. Uh, stay with us, Kyle. I want to come back to you. He's going to make a little money here for the radio station. So hang, hang tight. We're going to come right back to ask you a few more questions about your space. Appreciate you being with us. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. Welcome back to Hi-Fi Radio. If you have any questions about today's show or financial questions you need answered, go to WolfgangKlein.com. And now, back to the show. Here's Wolfgang and Jack. Yeah, good morning, and thanks for tuning in to AM640 Hi-Fi Radio. Live from New York, Kyle Rose, the body parts specialist, shall we say. So uh, let's stay on your nuvasive for a second, uh, Kyle. Um, you were sharing with us a little information about this uh, spinal um, med tech company. Uh, what type of growth exists in spinal repair uh, in, in your estimation? <laughs> 
Yeah, so I mean, when we think about the overall spinal market in the U.S., I mean, it's probably growing in the you know low low to mid single digits, so somewhere in the you know three to four percent range, um, which which doesn't sound great on on the whole. But when you think about you know Nuvasiv in particular, I mean, they are in the fastest growing you know niches of of that spine market. So we've got you know, Nuvasiv growing um, their U.S. spine business in the high single digits, so eight and a half percent this year, and, and see similar type growth. You know, moving forward as well, so they're they're really the innovators in the field that and, and being rewarded with market share in, in that growth. Now, in terms of again the valuation on this company, it, it according to your work, it's trading at around thirty times next year's earnings. Uh, so, what type of growth are you getting to support a relatively high multiple? Well, that's the that's the thing about about Nuvasiv. You're getting um, you know some very strong top line growth, you know, two three x the the over underlying market rate. But you also have a huge earning story. This is a company that's just starting to really realize um, the leverage opportunities that are that are within the business. And, and when I think about my coverage in, in the spine space in particular, this management team has done the best job of of laying out you know how they're going to realize you know almost a thousand bips of uh, of operating margin expansion over over the coming you know five plus years so they've got a clear line of sight to grow um, operating margins you know, by 100 bits this year and then you'll get north of 20 percent in, in the coming years following so I think you're going to see a big earnings growth story here that's why you're seeing the premium to, to the broader group but I still think that that margin expansion story is, is relatively underappreciated by investors mm-hmm. and, and just just to let the audience know a hundred bips is one percent a thousand bips is ten percent um, now let's get back to uh, the world's favorite man, uh, President-elect Donald Trump, Mr. Trump. Um, th- does he have your sector in his sights? Because, of course, he's always speaking about repeal and replace and the price of pharma. But again, you're in medtech. So uh, how does that fit into his uh, area of attack? Yeah, I mean, so... I would say all of healthcare and life sciences has, you know, is under you know increased scrutiny for pricing and and just you know the overall um, you know, healthcare reform in the states. I mean, it's it's hard to escape that, you know, given you know, what we hear coming out of out of the government on on a daily or even hourly basis. That said, uh, it feels like a lot of the low hanging fruit and a lot of the bigger focus uh, by, by the by the um, you know the current. The current bills in place are more pharma focused. You know, we've heard a little bit about some potential executive orders coming out on pharma pricing. We're going to feel, you know, um, medtech's going to be, you know, insulated from that. There, there's been ongoing pricing pressures in my space, you know, of one to two percent on an annual basis for the last you know, five to seven years. You compare that to the pharma side, where you've seen, you know large price increases on a year-over-year basis. So I, I, I'd like to think that, that our space is a little bit more insulated from some of that. But regardless, you know, with the uh, appeal, um, repeal and replace you know, type, type of focus that's going on in Washington, there, there's really nowhere to hide in, in, uh, in, in health care. Mm-hmm. Hey, just for interest sake, uh, again, I, I know what a water pump would be worth for my Volkswagen, about 200 bucks. But if I were to buy myself a new hip uh, or a new knee, what is a wholesale price? Do you, do you know offhand? Yeah, I mean, the way that we kind of think about uh, average pricing is somewhere around uh, you know five thousand dollars for an implant in, in the U.S. Again, it, it depends on a variety of factors um, because there's different contracts with each ind- individual hospital, and each product carries a, you know different pricing trends there. But we try to think about it somewhere in the ballpark of around five thousand so, dollars. So, but that's just for the actual product, not for the installation of or warranty thereafter. <laughs> 
Correct, yeah. Can you buy an extended warranty on this stuff? (laughs) (laughs) When when you start getting into it, it could be a new category for us. MedTech, med financing. Hey, tell me something about the, just for fun to, to the Canadian audience because we don't appreciate the, the different pay structure. But um, do, do any of your consumers actually do a layaway plan or a pay-as-you-go or a financing option? Um, I mean, I think that you know, the majority of these, are, uh, when I think about per, in particular hips and knees, the, the biggest payer in the U.S. for, for hips and knees is going to be you know, Medicare with the federal government. Um, so there's probably less of that, you know, financing and pay-as-you-go specifically in hips and knees, just because you think of the patient population. It's going to be people that are probably, um, you know, 65 years or older, so they're going to fall within within uh, the Medicare population in the States. Do you, just, again, for interest's sake, uh, Kyle, do you, do you know what the, full, the all-in cost would be to have a knee replaced? So 5000 bucks would go to Zimmer, but surgeons, hospital time, and of course, hospital time is being diminished, so I assume they're becoming more efficient and margins are probably getting a little juicier. But do, do you know what the all-in cost is, by the way? I wish I could give you an answer on that. You know, every year we see some sort of comparison on, on uh, uh, costs from one hospital to another and one one region to another. It always pops up in either the, the, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, and it's it's all across the board, anywhere from twenty thousand to you know, you know magnitudes of that. So it really it really depends. Hmm. Well, fascinating stuff, Kyle. It really is. I really appreciate all of your time, your insight, your wisdom. And uh, guess what? You're not getting too far away from Jack and I. We're going to be back at your door, bringing you back on Hi-Fi Radio, my good friend. So thank you. Fantastic. Have a good day. You too. Stay with us. There's more show still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 studios in Toronto. For the love of money, Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein. Talk Radio, AM 640. Ah, yes, learning to fly. And so we got my good friend, again, from New York, Tony Dwyer, back on the show. Chief Strategist, Canaccord Genuity. Tony, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be back, Wolfie. Always good to talk to you. Yeah, you, you are such a great guy and you're a great American. And, and you, you fly, correct? Correct. That, that is so cool. Yeah, you, you have a little airplane that you like to fly to the mountains. Your, your little getaway, I guess, your version of the Muskokas. <laughs> so, so Tony, here, let's talk numbers, my main man. Uh, year to date, the TSX down eighty bips. Last hit, we learned what a bip was. hundred bips is one percent. So, if you're down eighty bips, the market's down 0.8 of a percent year to date. Meanwhile, south of the border in your home country, thanks to Trump, I guess, eh? This is all Trump. Markets up nine percent on the S and P. Nasdaq up fifteen percent, despite, of course, the weakness in tech of late. Still a fifteen point return there. If you go to mainland China, up seventeen percent, and the Emerging Markets Index up seventeen percent. So we're not participating. We're going to start shedding some tears here. But I read your strategy book here. Headline, the key headlines you, you, you highlight, Tony. Number one, recession still years away. Corporate credit remains sound. Economy poised to rebound. Expect earnings per share and valuation to see more upside. And your tactical ig- indicators overbought, suggesting a temporary correction, which is exactly what's been taking place this week. The market's correcting. Tony, you nailed it here. Well, so far, so good, Wolfie. But I I would tell you that I I would not give credit to President Trump 
for the outperformance in the U.S. versus Canada. Actually, if it were truly because of President Trump and his and potential legislation that's very stimulative to economic activity, Canada would be doing better because resources would be doing better and financials would be doing better. And I think that's going to be the theme going into the second half of the year where those two areas do begin to participate. Remember, if technology, technology is done so well because investors go to areas that they know they will find growth in a low growth environment. So if you need to have a good return of capital, you want to find that best growth. When everything is slow, you find the fastest growth, and that's been in tech. If President Trump gets done what he wants to get done with tax cuts and regulatory reform, that's stimulative to economic activity, and that'll end up benefiting the banks and materials and energy space. You know, Trump is the new word for go, because all I have to do to an American is say the word Trump, and they go. You just went. That was great. I love it. That's hilarious. Uh, Tony. Tactical indicators overbought. We're feeling a little bit of weakness in this marketplace. So is this the big correction, the big summer sell-off that the market has been waiting for? I don't know if there's going to be a big summer sell-off. I think it'll be choppy, Wolf. Uh, I don't, you know, I think people are waiting for the next shoe to drop when uh, a bunch of the sectors you've already seen the shoe drop. You've seen the copper stocks, the steel stocks, the energy stocks, the oil stocks. Um, they've already taken the bank stocks up until very, very recently, have taken it on the chin for the first part of the year. So I think we have to be careful to say that, you know, the entire market's going to correct when a lot of it already has. So I think it's more of a rolling correction than a outright index correction, Wolf. So in other words, technology could pull back, but banks could go up. And I think uh, last week and over the last, last five trading days, that's evidence that that could be that could be true. You know, two weeks ago, Jack Hartle on, on Hi-Fi Radio AM640 said the safety trade became the tech stocks, which is setting up the vulnerability for correction. I kid you not, five days later, they rolled over. Jack nailed it. Uh, and I know you, you you heard that, Joe, Tony. But I think Jack's got a question he wants to pipe in here. Yeah, Tony, you're talking about uh, Trump's reforms, uh, infrastructure, tax cuts, regulatory reform. He's got a long list of them, uh, but he hasn't got anything done so far. Uh, what's it going <laughs> to take for him to, to actually get some some legislation through Congress? Well, it's really going to take some compromise and a little bit less rhetoric. You hope the political rhetoric can die down, but I think um, I think Paul Ryan in the House is going to be a big influence here in trying to bring the caucus together to try and get some actual legislation done. But as we all know, you're running out of you're kind of running out of time. So our base case scenario really isn't that you have to have all of this stuff happen to have better economic activity in the U.S. Because you've already had a drop in the 10-year note yield of about 50 basis points from a 2.6 to a 2.1 earlier this week. That's stimulative to economic activity, so you're probably going to get it anyway. If you get a little bit of the uh, the gravy on top of uh, uh, of of the food to taste better, that'll be the Trump legislation. Sure. And, and with the lower long rates that you referenced there, you're still positive on the financials here? I am. I am, Wolf, because, that, again, it's stimulative to loan growth. So you, you'd rather see, instead of just seeing just a wide yield curve, you need to see loan growth, too. So I think the environment's right for low expectations, good upside opportunity, and I don't think investors in the U.S. are positioned that way. T- Tony, and, and to Jack's credit, I think that call he made a week ago, that's what's playing out. Correct. They're overexposed to tech and underexposed to banks. Um, now, Tony, um, so again, the, the, the Fed has been raising rates, which means they've been taking the short-term interest rate up. And now the new band is, what, one to one and a quarter, I believe, and currently the overnight rate's about 91 basis points. Um, but the long rate, the 10-year which you're speaking to or, or, or thereafter, the Fed is now going to be speaking about unwinding their balance sheet. Uh, so do you believe that they can 
stop raising at the short end and have long rates rise just by their lack of buying or inactivity in the marketplace? Hence, keeping no, the I, keep, I, well, keep I, I think that's kind of a better media story than it is an actual story that the Fed is the driver behind the long-term interest rates and they're buying, they haven't been expanding the balance sheet. They've just simply been reinvesting uh, the money that has been maturing. So they, they haven't been expanding the balance sheet, and Japan and China have been selling Treasury bonds. If I told you that was going to be the case a couple of years ago, you sure wouldn't have bet that interest rates would be so low. But the real driver is the slope of the yield curve, meaning the difference for the, for the listeners, the difference between the short-term uh, interest rates and long-term interest rates when and that's currently where it is. Banks just invest off of that. So they take, they get their money at the deposit rate, what they pay you to deposit your money at their institution, and they just start buying longer duration bonds to take that spread. Until you invert the yield curve, that's going to continue. So that it's really the commercial banks are the biggest buyer of treasuries right now, not the Fed. Interesting. Uh, stay with us, Tony, because I want to come back to your core thesis. I want you to share with the audience your thesis for what drives the stock market higher or lower right after this. Money. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. Money. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 studios in Toronto. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio with the Wolf on Bay Street, Wolfgang Klein. For a podcast of today's show, go to 640toronto.com or wolfgangkline.com. Now, back to the show. Here's Wolfgang and Jack. Well, good morning again, Toronto and rock star Tony Dwyer on the phone. So, Tony, uh, I want you to share with the audience your theses, key drivers uh, for, for the market. Well, it's really not even a thesis, uh, as you know, Wolfie. It's it's more of a historical fact. And the one that's most important to convey and what has really been driving the market this year has been earnings. Number one, the first and most important part of the whole five-bullet-point core thesis is that the market is most closely correlated with the direction of earnings, which means if earnings go up, the markets are going up. And so that's the key to that whole thing. Earnings are driven by economic activity, number two. So in other words, as long as economic activity is positive, earnings are positive and the market's positive. Number three, economic activity is driven by the availability of money, which can be seen on what we talked a little bit earlier about, which is the slope of the yield curve. It's a difference between short-term and long-term interest rates, what banks get their money at and when they lend it to us at. When that's a positive number, the economy is positive, earnings are positive, and the market's positive. Also, that's driven, availability of money and slope of the yield curve is driven by Fed policy. It's what interest, what the Federal Reserve is doing to interest rates because it drives that yield curve. And lastly, the Fed policy is driven by core inflation. So as long as you have what we have, which is tame core inflation, low and stable core inflation, you get historically low Fed funds rate, which is even on the recent uh, hikes has been, is still true. And if you have low real Fed funds rate, you have a steep yield curve, which means banks are willing to lend. That means the economy is going to grow and that means earnings are going up and that means your investments are going up. So that core thesis that's been in place since the end of the 2009 recession in the U.S. and the financial crisis remains firmly in place currently. Uh, Tony, can, can we shift gears here for, for a bit of a global um, uh, discussion? Because uh, you and I have spoken about this off air before and the, the U.S. market is, is not egregiously priced, but it certainly is 
fully priced. If you continue to get earnings growth, the market can continue to get multiple expansion a little bit more. But let's look for relative valuation across the pond. Uh, do you think North American investors, Canadians and Americans, should reconsider their current allocation of primarily domestically located assets, i.e. American, North American assets, and start to allocate assets into the likes of Germany or Switzerland or Italy or, shall I even say, Greece? Those valuation and growth discrepancies that have been true for the last six months a little bit less true, and it's become a little bit of a consensus trade. Mm -hmm. So after a brief pause where it might make sense to keep your money in the U.S. and North America and Canada, um, over, over time that's probably true, Wolf, where you're getting better. You're, you're likely to get a little bit better growth, especially in emerging uh, economies. So that that is certainly a place to put some of your money. Right now I'd, I'd sit tight waiting for this chop period that we're likely to get through the summertime. How much cash would you would you like to hold throughout the summer? As a final question. Well, that's a, that really depends on the individual, buddy. I, from a professional level, we service clients that don't use a lot of cash, so I'm going to keep it at that. Yeah, fair enough. Tony, you're you're great, man. I absolutely love you. I really do. So does Jack. Uh, wish you a great weekend, and we're going to get you back on Hi-Fi Radio very very soon. All the best, my man. All right, thank you very much for having me, Wolf. All right, coming up next, we're going to bring Rick Davis on, software guru, working again out of America. That's where all those good tech guys seem to like to hang out. So let's get his insight into the world of software. Hey, Rick Davis, how are you, my friend? Tremendous. How about yourself? Oh, we're doing very, very well here on Saturday morning. We're getting so educated. Uh, Kyle Rose taught us about uh, body parts. Tony Dwyer, of course, gave us his core thesis. And now you're going to stretch our minds as we talk with you about your just, just incredible companies like the likes of Salesforce. So share with us what is most tantalizing in the world of software right now, Rick. Yeah, so I think we're you know in a good space fundamentally for a lot of these software companies. Um, the good news is that means the stocks have worked well. They've advanced on average about 29% year-to-date, which is three times the S&P 500. The bad news is that a lot of these stocks are kind of getting speeding tickets from investors. And so I, what we think is happening is you're probably seeing a little bit of a pause that refreshes uh, over the summer until people kind of catch their breath on some of these names. Now, now that being said, there are some really good companies that we think you should stick with, and they're you know, good, good quality. And, and, and as you mentioned at the intro here, I mean, Salesforce is one of those. They have a big uh, conference in November, and typically the stock outperforms going into and through that, so that should be a good spot. Adobe reports tomorrow, or tomorrow, but next week, and, uh, and so I think that should be a good quarter. And then Oracle report, they, um, they always talk a big game and confuse people. The stock probably has $3 upside, but on balance, we're kind of cooling on Oracle, and frankly, we're warming up a little bit on hold-rated uh, Microsoft. All right. So Jack and I own Adobe uh, for our growth clients in our balance account as well, Jack. No, just, just in our growth, growth clients. Yep, so, and again, uh, I know a lot of creative folks in Adobe. When you spoke to someone creative 20 years ago, they were using Adobe software to, you know, do their uh, online, was it illustration back then? I guess we'd call it. Um, but Adobe is such a different company today, Rick. Uh, can, can you share with us how this company has morphed itself? I think not once, but twice. Yes, it really is. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when Adobe used to be a font company, so that shows you uh, how they've evolved from that. So they evolved to that, to basically what is known as creative. So basically anything digitally created, 
and that could be a TV ad, a web ad, a mobile ad, and those kind of things, and measuring it, which is they have a, product, a company called Omniture, so measuring the analytics side of it, is what they do. So they basically are analogous to Salesforce. If Salesforce helps salespeople and call center reps be better at their jobs, Adobe helps give those same people the content and the ability to sell and, and wow you. So if you look at all those car ads you see on TV and you see those cars whizzing around, and a lot of times that, that design or that picture is developed in Adobe software. Unbelievable. And, so, and they have a great competitive moat, even, frankly, better than some respects than Salesforce, because if you really think about it, there's no one else out there of any size that really competes with uh, Adobe on any kind of regular basis. So we <laughs> love companies with big moats. Going to do some old school, my friend. We got to play a few commercials. Do you know what those are? Commercials? Yes, we're going to play a few of those. Please support our sponsors. Stay tuned. I want to dig deeper into this gray matter of Rick Davis uh, right after this. Don't go anywhere. There's more great show right after this. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. of money hi-fi radio with wolfgang klein talk radio am 640 oh rick that's what you get from us a little sticks mr roboto how do you feel about that pal i love it <laughs> <That's> hilarious <laughs> what a throwback it's great um let, let's stick on adobe for a quick sec then i want to jump over to your salesforce idea but so now let's go back to uh, adobe so do they have what three or four silos uh, of activity that are taking place that are all interconnected from a marketing perspective Correct, yeah. So it's basically help people create interesting content, push it out to multiple endpoints, whether that's, again, it's TV, mobile, which is increasingly important, uh, and, and even you know endpoints like tablets and things like that, and analyze it. And those are the kind of the big drivers of the business. And between those three things, it's kind of a nice uh, virtuous cycle that helps them kind of continue to grow they you know they guide conservatively they generate great cash flow margins um you know this feels like a we think you know our view is that you could probably hopefully see a double in the stock over four or five years so it's amazing because this, this name it's a 63 billion dollar company so if that was in the tsc 60 i bet you would rank number five number number four maybe it's just remarkable and, and yet i think most canadians are not that familiar with the name but let's jump over to salesforce because yep. whether canadians are, are familiar with it or not it knows Canadians, doesn't it, with all the data tracking it's doing on you and I? Absolutely. So what they do is they basically help kind of put the pointy end of the stick for the salespeople to get more effective and to bring in more clients. So they really uh, help drive that side of the equation. And just as an aside, I don't know if you saw, um, but Coca-Cola got rid of their chief marketing officer, and now they've replaced him with a chief growth officer. And so what you're seeing from companies is they understand you can't cut your way to success. You've got to grow. And Salesforce is one of the companies that help you do that. And, and so how can they help companies grow? So basically what they do is they help you understand and target the right customers with the right offers and the right communications at the right time. So it could be as simple as I send an email out to a, a bunch of uh, clients, and then 
they respond, and I therefore I know that they're interested in whatever I'm selling or whatever service I'm selling. On the other side of the equation, they help you at the middle of the funnel, which is basically let you buy and sell things. So they bought a company called Demandware, which is an e-commerce site for mostly large enterprises. So if you if you know Shopify, they do more smaller enterprises. This is for big companies, everything from Adidas to what have you. And then finally, they help you in the call center. So in case something goes wrong or you need help, they are the people that feed all that information out so that when you call the call center, they don't you know, look at you like you have three heads. Rick, just another thing here, big theme going on in technology and in your space. A lot of the traditional enterprise software companies, they're, they're doing what's called a model flip. I'm just wondering if you could maybe explain that to, uh, to the listeners out there. Sure, yeah. So uh, the old models of the 1990s, it was great for the software vendors because you would sell uh, you know, millions, you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of software, what's called upfront, and then you would pay a 20% maintenance fee every year thereafter. So it was great for the vendor. Not so good for the customer because they had to pay all this money up front, and then you know the the software vendor just left the room and never called them back. So what's happened now is you have this thing called subscription or cloud uh, software. So cloud software is think of it like Google. Google updates its software in the background all the time, but you don't notice it because they do it kind of incrementally. And so what's happened is it's a much more stable model. It requires less development effort because you only have one or two versions outstanding as opposed to eight or ten, and the profitability in the end is a lot better. Now, the problem is is when you go from selling stuff up front to selling stuff over time, as in a subscription, for a period of time, typically two to three years, your profits go down, and that's what happens. So you kind of go through a valley of, of uh, low margins and, and sometimes losses, but then you come roaring back. Right, and, and we so, saw... Yeah, sorry, and, say, and we saw that, that with yeah. uh, Adobe. We saw that with Auto, Autodesk. Yep, and, and Oracle. Oracle's going through it as well. Yep. Um, where, where's Autodesk? I guess in the process. Early stage, so they're probably um, you know in the first third of this transition. Now, what typically happens now that investors understand this dynamic, they they give the company credit sooner than they used to in the old days, which is like say five or six years ago. So nowadays, you can actually buy companies pretty much about the time they announce a model flip that ends up starting to be a, a better story. And that's what happened to a do, um, Autodesk, you know, this year. It, it's, uh, I don't know, it's up 25% or something like that. Mm-hmm. And because people went from being skeptical to they can believing. See, I say they can see the light at the end of the tunnel now, I guess. Exactly. Eh? exactly. Yeah. And again, auto, for those who don't know, Autodesk is a, a low-cost, uh, two-dimensional, three-dimensional computer-aided design, a.k.a. AutoCAD. Uh, yeah. Probably most people are familiar with that. Mission-critical software, as Jack likes to refer to it as. I, I want to end on, on one, of your, 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 one of your favorite names, ServiceNow. Um, uh, Jack's notes here, next-generation workflow company. So what does ServiceNow do, this, yep. this little $17 billion company of yours? Exactly. So a lot of people don't realize, but about half of all software used by businesses is written by those companies themselves. And the reason is it might be a small application that that an Oracle or Salesforce just doesn't feel is a big enough market to really address, or or the company has something specific it needs. So what, what ServiceNow sells you is the hammers and nails to build cloud applications for your own company. And it could be a little time and attendance app. It could be a HR onboarding app. If you're a bank, it could be how to set up a loan process and those kind of things. So, so simple little projects. Yeah. So those are things that they do, and they basically are the guys out there helping companies write their own software. And so they're competing with the HPs 
um, the computer associates and parts of IBM, and they seem to be running circles around those guys. Unbelievable. Uh, Rick, you're a great guy. I really appreciate all of your wisdom and time. It's a great relationship we have with you, and we're going to continue that relationship. Uh, appreciate it, man. You have yourself a great weekend. You too, buddy. Thank Th- you. Thanks, Rick. Stay with us. There's more shows still to come. You're listening to Hi-Fi Radio from the AM640 Studios in Toronto. Hi-Fi Radio, AM 640. And for all those daddies out there, I have to wish you all a happy Father's Day. You know, we, we shortchanged ourselves. This whole show should have been dedicated to you. And, of course, it slipped our minds. And Jack's a dad. I'm a dad. And so is Jeff Blanco, Managing Director, Head of Foreign Exchange with Canaccord Genuity. 25 years of industry experience trading loonies. My goodness me. What a job. Jeff, thanks for coming back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me again. So uh, I'm going to call it a short cover rally. Uh, when you short something, you sell it first, you hope it falls, and you buy it back, hopefully, at lower prices later, and you book your profit. So you sell high, you buy low. Um, and that's what many people around the world were doing. They were shorting our beloved loony. And it looks like they ran for cover this week. So what gave to the shorts? Yeah, the uh, Hate Canada trade was on in full force. Uh, hate Canada trade. <laughs> it's, been on, it's been on a couple of times in the last three years, and it's never worked out well for them either time. But, Good. Uh, uh, Bank of Canada surprised the markets, and people say it was a hawkish uh, bias. I like to th- say it's a non-dovish bias by the Bank of Canada, which was a which is a big change, and that resulted in a very quick repricing of interest rate expectations uh, by the Bank of Canada. So... Um, chance of a rate hike went from in December went from 25% to 80% this week and the Canadian dollar rallied about 200 basis points uh, and a bulk of that was due to the fact that the market was short Canadian dollars aggressively going mm-hmm. into this. I just want to share with the audience number one so if the Bank of Canada is a hawk they're concerned about inflation and hence likely to raise interest rates at the sniff of any kind of inflation. If they are a dove, they care not so much about inflation, more concerned about economic activity. And the Canadian dollar moved 200 basis points. So to the average person, it moved two pennies. Right. Okay. So uh, core inflation is not really high in the Bank of Canada right now. So it's not really concerned about inflation. But keep in mind, in 2015, they cut rates twice as an insurance policy against the negative impacts of, of oil. So the data in Canada has been fairly strong for the last six months. I think it's safe to say that we don't need that insurance policy anymore, at least two cuts. So repricing of a, of a hike, I think, is warranted as the Bank of Canada moves from dovish to neutral and not necessarily to hawkish at this particular and, point and in time. I would time. say, Jeff, do you actually see them uh, going forward? You, you said a de- by December doing a, a rate hike. Do you, would you expect that to actually happen? I expect them to uh, hike rates um, probably by the end of the year, but it's not going to be... There's a difference between... Um, a prolonged rate hiking cycle, and uh, and moving from a dovish to a neutral stance. So I think we're more in the latter stage and not really looking for the Bank of Canada to go aggressively hiking rates on an ongoing basis. Right, and and how but, much? How much are they concerned about the the trade deficits that we're running and, and the the strength? Well, they have to be concerned, learning. and and uh, there's no export growth, and and even though like price of oil is still very very low. So and and there's been a lot of weak data coming into the U.S. economy lately. So you put a weak U.S. a weaker U.S. economy, the market expects less rate hikes than the market expects south of the border. Um, still a very low price of oil. It's going to be very difficult for the Bank of Canada to get hawkish in this environment. Correct. And 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 with them getting a little concerned uh, in terms of rates, 
How much is her hand being pushed by uh, the Fed south of the border? Um, that's a good. That's a good comment. The Bank of Canada always likes to think that they can run an independent monetary policy here, and every time they try to do that, it kind of bites them in the in the mm-hmm. rear end on a regular basis. So uh, they, uh, I think, they're looking at it as um, their independent policy. But reality is they will follow the Fed at some particular point in time. And money goes where it's welcome. And if they're going to pay yeah. a higher rate south of the board and you want to be competitive, you have to raise rates. But So then the next question, the big question, my good friend, housing. If they begin to ratchet interest rates up in Canada, how much would it take, of course, to take some of the froth out of the housing market? Well, I think that's got to be a concern to the balance sheets of Canadians if they start raising rates here uh, based on the level of debt. So um, for that reason alone, I think any... Any uh, pace of rate hikes in Canada will f- will fall well behind the pace of rate hikes in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But so just, that should be somewhat negative for the Canadian dollar um, going forward. Take but, the take this positioning adjustment out of it. But if foreigners looking at the the Canadian real estate market and the fact that they see that this the currency the the loonie is going to stable or strengthen a bit or strengthen, mm-hmm. it would make their it would attract their dollars coming into Canada, Good saying point. that uh, you know what I'm not going to be buying loonies at seventy cents and then have them fall down to sixty five, for instance. Mm-hmm. So, so 65 cent loony. We, we had a few guests in Jeff saying the loony could in fact fall to, was it 50 or 55 cents by 55, JJ? Yeah, 55, 55 cents. What do you think of that? Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. Don't think it's going to happen. I nor nor do I. Happen. No. I think, um, you know, while I, I would say I'm sort of more bearish Canadian dollars at these levels than I am bullish, um, there's a limit to where we're going to go, I think, from these levels. And I think uh, if you get anywhere near, you know, 72 cents. I think that's uh, that's going to be a, sort of the outside of what I expect for the weakness. Of the so so let me ask you, if, if you're a, a Canadian small business owner, because Jack and I have a number of them as clients, right. small Canadian business owners doing business south of the border. So they get revenues coming yep. in from the Americans and they sell them their service in Canadian dollars. So the question is they have to always repatriate that currency or bring it back. Where would you be buying the Canadian dollar if you were them and where would you be selling the Canadian dollar? Um, Depends on your time frame uh, and the short so over over a six month period. Over the six month period, I think anywhere near seventy four cents is a level to start buying the Canadian dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll be very difficult to make traction. I think the last time I was here, we were around uh, uh, seventy three cents or something around, like right. that. It's and I said uh, we had viewed the Canadian dollar as being somewhat undervalued at those levels. Correct. Uh, we view it right now as being somewhat overvalued based on some of the right, so seventy five and a half on right a shorter now? term basis. But the positioning thing is a big but here, and you can't ignore that. So this usually takes a long time to work itself out. So any weakness in the Canadian dollar will be limited for the short term. So Agreed. if we move up towards 74 cents, I think that's uh, that's a good level for anybody looking to sell U.S. dollars to uh, to do so. And, right. and what's the upper range of that level as well? Uh, I don't think the Bank of Canada is going to be very happy if the Canadian dollar rallies much beyond 77 cents. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. Well, we don't have to worry about going to Florida just yet. We've got some good weather finally coming to Canada, so that, that's not a big issue. But if you're a business owner, that, those are your levels. Uh, basically, uh, buy the loony at around $0.74, cents, sell the loony at around $0.77. Cents. I would have said 72 to 80 you're As unexciting as that number. is, uh, I think that's what we're going to look at for the next little while. Well, thanks, Dad. You are a dad of how many kids? Three kids. Nice. Three boys. I have th- three boys, three yeah. animals. i got two animals and a princess. Yeah. And Jack has three as well. Yeah. To, two to, princesses and an animal. Two princesses and an animal. Wow. Happy Father's <laughs> Day, guys. It's a, we have to celebrate ourselves for a change, eh? Thank you for listening. Hi-Fi Radio AM640. An absolute pleasure and delight to be your host for the show. Do tune in each and every week. All the best. 
You've been listening to Hi-Fi Radio with Wolfgang Klein and Jack Hartle, portfolio managers at Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management. For questions about today's show or any money questions you need answered, email Wolf and Jack at WolfgangKlein.com. For the podcast of today's show, go to 640Toronto.com. New shows every week. Hi-Fi Radio, for the love of money. We'll see you next week.